This is Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin, and I serve in the Ministry of Restorative Justice, which is bringing the sacraments and the Word of God to those who are incarcerated, particularly in the cities of Gatesville and Marlin, where we have a number of prison units that we serve on a daily basis. Today, we are in a new series of outreach to those of our incarcerated flock, and this is going to be the guidance that we get from Renee Brown, Director of Counseling for Catholic Charities of Central Texas, who has both personal and professional experience with the incarcerated. And the topic for today is going to be, what do I do when I get out? How do I make that work? And for the rest of us who perhaps have never been incarcerated or even known anybody who has been incarcerated, uh, the hope is that this will be some enlightenment for us, uh, some way for us to assist people when we happen to run into them and we find out that they have been previously incarcerated, maybe make that a little less awkward. And for all of those who are listening who have been victims of crime, the hope here is that the outrage outreach to those who are incarcerated will be a way for you to say to yourself that my suffering from this crime is not in vain, that these people are getting the help that they need, and if they'll be open to the movement of God's Holy Spirit, they can repent, they can have their conversion where they will never commit a crime again. And so we're going to begin with our first session in a series of six, and this is on common adverse psychological effects of incarceration, which we'll address because once people get out, they may experience things that they don't understand, and we're going to try and help with that a little bit. So just right off the bat, Renee, uh, what are some of the common adverse psychological effects that incarcerated people might experience after they release from prison? After talking to my daughter about how she was feeling after being released, she shared a lot of insight. And these were actually things that developed while she was in prison, while she was incarcerated, but they they left with her. We don't just leave feelings and thoughts behind because we're released. She was actually experiencing um, several things. Um, she shared with me that depression was a major piece that she struggled with after release. There is this excitement that you feel like she was really excited to get out. I went and picked her up and there's this, this, you know, excitement in the air. She's coming home. We had things planned, but she had developed a depression while inside, while incarcerated. And that followed her, that followed her out. Um, anxiety as well was another piece. And detaching from people emotionally and feelings of anger. And the anger just wasn't um, at others per se. The anger was at herself. So anger was kind of spread out with everyone. Um, and then, like, while she was inside, she experienced deprivation of security um, deprivation of routines, um, loss of freedom, and lack of choices. But interesting, when she got out, she still experienced some of those same feelings. Would you think that something similar could happen to the rest of us when we finally clear the restrictions of the current pandemic, 
and we start to come out of it. Maybe the vaccines are there and everybody's able to move around. Do you think we'll experience some similar things as well? Oh, absolutely. I think what happens is when you're we've been sheltering in place with the pandemic, correct? And if you think about it, it's almost similar to an incarceration because for us, it was sheltering at home. So in a way, I'm trapped in my home, just as people incarcerated feel like they are trapped in prison. And so when you're inside and you're in your head a lot, um, you tend to develop you know, thoughts of maybe, is this ever going to be over? Will this ever end? Am I going to get outside again? Am I going to have my freedom again to do the things that I want to do? Am I going to have choices again? Um, When I do get out, because I've been isolated by myself or with my family, what's it going to be like that first time I'm at a Walmart or out shopping and there's all these people, like that might create a sense of anxiety. So there is a lot of similarities between the two and the feelings that we develop while we're in our trap, so to speak, and how those are just not going to dissipate because, oh, it's over. Those feelings will often follow us and we'll have to work on those so that we don't continue to feel that way. Does that have something to do with what is called deterioration of the mind? What does that exactly mean? So I wanted to give you all a really good definition other than than what I could come up with. So I looked one up for you that I'm going to share, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. But um, mental health defines deterioration of the mind as a change for the worst of mental state. And that's measured by negative changes in mood. Uh, Maybe negative changes in behavior, your affect, your thoughts, your perception, and your cognition. And so what all that means in a nutshell is when your mind starts to deteriorate, you may find it challenging to learn new information. Or you may find that you can't recall information that you know as easily. Um, And your behaviors may get out of whack. You know, you may develop some different behaviors due to deterioration of the mind. And, of course, your mood is going to change. When your mind kind of starts deteriorating, it directly affects your mood. And if your thoughts are negative, it makes sense that your feelings are going to become negative, which in turn, the mood is affected as well. It's it's hard to be positive and upbeat and joyful when when negative thoughts and negative feelings are surrounding you, of course. So that's what deterioration of the mind is in that technical definition. And then you Mm -hmm. kind of broke it down for us as well. But why does that happen? I mean, I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm saying, well, gee, I don't want my mind to deteriorate. (laughs) How, How does that occur? Well, I think for incarcerated people, so much of their life has changed, right? So their their routines are basically over according to their will. Now the routines that they have are at somebody else's will. Um, there's lack of decision-making. You don't decide what you want to eat. You don't decide when you eat. You don't decide what clothes to wear because your clothes are already chosen for you. There are basically, there's no choices. You know, there there's really lack of free will if if you'll go there. Um, All of those things are going to play into developing negative thoughts. 
Um, and then the people that you're surrounded by. Um, if if everyone around you is negative, and it would it it has to feel like a negative experience to be sitting in a place where you have no choices, you don't have interactions with your family, and if the other people are are negative around you, you start picking up on some of those pieces as well. We often listen to other people. And we listen to what they say, and we're we so humans are created to be in relationship with each other. And even if it's somebody spewing negativity, if I'm desperate for relationship, then I might buy into that negativity or start adopting some of those thinkings for my own as a way to relate and have relationship with others. So that sounds like one of those things that you could put in a list of stuff that happens to somebody when they're incarcerated for mm-hmm. a period of time. It has those deteriorating effects. Um, now, we mentioned before, and you mentioned earlier in this program, that your daughter was mm-hmm. uh, incarcerated for a time. Were there other examples of adverse psychological experience for her besides the, the, the deteriorating of the mind? Oh, sure. Um, especially, you know, upon release. Um, you know, I can remember, actually, I was with Tierney. We were in Walmart, and it was just one other lady on the aisle with us and one lady at the very end. So the aisles in Walmart are pretty long, right? But she is, like, having an anxiety attack in front of me. Like, she's having difficulty breathing, and she feels claustrophobic, like she's closed in. And I'm looking at her. She's looking at me, and she's like, Mom, I'm going to have to go to the car. Um, And this didn't happen once. This happened several times that if we were in, like, a restaurant, the same thing could happen. We would often ask for a table that maybe was a little isolated or out of the way where there were not so many people um, just because for her to be around that many people felt chaotic and and it would increase her anxiety. Um, and interesting, um, the when she was released, there was a, there was an issue in the summer. We were so excited to celebrate her birthday. And it was very challenging for her to interact with our family. And we're a very close family. I mean, Every Sunday, you know, was with my parents and my sisters and their kids, right? But because of, of I think, like the embarrassment pieces or the she felt like she disappointed people, she felt guilty. She had all these these feelings that she, she came home with. It made it very challenging for quite some time for her to interact with others. And distinctly at the birthday party, it was interesting because her and Corley, my grandson, were going to celebrate their birthdays together. He wanted to celebrate his birthday with hers. And it was just, it, she was sad. You know, you would think, oh, joyful, finally a birthday at home and my family is here. But for her, it was very sad because of all these other things that she was feeling. Like I've disappointed everybody, my own child. There was this tremendous guilt that Corley, for her, that Corley wanted to spend his birthday with her. Like it wasn't the normal so for her, it didn't feel good. Um, and even with with having freedom, the freedom to do whatever, she conducted herself in a very controlled manner, which I found very interesting that she didn't take advantage of, 
you know, just the freedom that she had. For example, um, she could have went to Dallas at any time to visit friends or family, but chose to pretty much stay at home with me. Um, And I think part of that, too, was fear, like what happens when I go back to this place where I grew up and I get around family and friends? You know, what what will my my behaviors be? There was a lot of fear, like to go back to her hometown and be around friends. So she had a lot in anger. That was a big piece for her. She was very angry at herself. Um, That was a huge piece for her. Not so much that she was angry with me or her son or our family, but the anger was all directed inside um, because she felt like she messed up her life and there was no turning back. And how could I have done this to my kid and been incarcerated? So working through anger was just very challenging and little things could just set her off, you know, um, if, if you left the cap off the toothpaste or just, you know, if there was no milk left, just little things could kind of just set that anger off. And even coming in, uh, she, she came to my home upon release, but there was a lot of like she needed these specific routines. She would sleep with her light on at night, which was fine, but just a lot of things like that, that fear, that lack of security, you know, like. She would check the doors several times, and I'm really great about locking the door, dead boat on, right? But she would, like, double-check me, sometimes triple-check me. And it would be the light in her room, but also our bathroom light would be on, you know, just for those security pieces. Um, And it felt strange to her to make choices. I'd be like, hey, where do you want to eat? Like, you know, I'm excited. She's out. I'm thinking, oh, she's going to want pizza or burgers or steak or whatever. I don't know. And, and it wasn't that we do that a lot as people. I don't know. What do you want kind of thing? But this was very different. It was almost like she couldn't make that decision. And I would have to literally break it down. Well, do you want fast food or do you want sit down food? Do you want Mexican food? Do you want Italian? You know, and just really help her through those decision making processes. The things that you just described is are a lot of things. And mm-hmm. if I'm sitting in prison right now hearing this, or if I have a loved one in prison and I'm hearing this, I might start to get a little sweaty and, and uh, anxious myself and say, oh, my goodness, that's an awful lot to go through. It's kind of like hearing about people that have gone through COVID and, and uh, you, you look at that and say, gee, I hope I don't get that. But they have got it. You know, mm-hmm. they're doing their time and, and yet here they are getting ready to get out. Or maybe you're listening and, and you've just gotten out. Um how long does this last? Does it go away? How do I overcome it? You know, I think the great thing about bringing this piece up is because traditionally, I think what we hear about when we hear about people leaving prison, it's all about resources, right? Is get this resource, get this resource, get this resource. But And we don't really talk about like the actual human experience of release, which is why I think these um, sessions are going to be so important because if you're sitting there, right, sitting, you know, in your cell or wherever right now, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't think it would be like that, then it can, can right now you can be preparing mentally. You can be preparing that, oh, my gosh, I may experience some of these things like, you know, Renee's daughter did. And so I just want to keep that in mind. So 
when I do get out and, and that depression still hanging there or I'm somewhere at a restaurant or a movie theater or Walmart and have anxiety, I can be like, oh, my gosh, this is this is reality and this is typical. And so for me, like just some of the things that you can do is acknowledge these feelings. That's that's the first thing is validate yourself. Acknowledge your feeling. Your feeling is valid. If you're feeling anxious in that Walmart, that's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's So it's an acknowledgement. You know what? I've been incarcerated for two or three years. You know, th- my normal was different. This is this is something I've got to get used to again. And, of course, as a as therapist, I'm always going to promote counseling, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, counseling can be such a, a benefit to help you with all of those things that you're experiencing. Having a therapist that you can go to that can kind of help you walk through, uh, you know, strategies and coping skills um, can be so helpful. So when you're having an anxiety attack in Walmart, hey, this is what I need to do. I need to do some deep breathing or I need to remind myself of I'm okay. Where am I at? People, places and things. Just some different kind of skills that you can work on, or maybe I need to take a break and go out to the car and try again. That's okay. If I'm in a restaurant, maybe I need to just take my food to go. That's okay. I think the great thing about this is just this kind of prepares you that this may be an experience that you may have. And so it's really normalizing this experience for you. Um, I think also... Having your friends and family be informed, you know, if you can inform your family and friends, like, hey, this may be some behaviors you're going to see me demonstrate, or this may be some things I might feel. And then this way, if you're with a family member, they're not freaking out like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Um, As a counselor, when Tierney's telling me I'm having an anxiety attack in Walmart, well, I, I know how to help her through that. You know, I'm a counselor, but not everybody may be able to know what to do. You know, your mom, your wife, your friends may kind of go, oh, my gosh, what's going on? So alerting them ahead of time or these are some feelings and thoughts that I'm dealing with. And that way they can have a foothold on kind of helping you through that. And then I think, too, you know, like I said, getting in with counselors to help you have those coping skills in place. So you have the tools that you need um, when you have some of these experiences. And as much as I fully embrace everything you have just said, counseling has been a feature in my own life and family members, and I've seen counseling help so many people. One component I would want to add to that hand in hand, not either or, but both, is being able to say to yourself as an incarcerated person, or again, as the family members of an incarcerated person, this giant move from one state of life incarceration to another state of life post-incarceration is kind of like when somebody says, I'm going to take a, a dip into the field of ministry to missionary territory. I'm going to take myself out of my comfort zone here in the United States and go to some far-flung place that's really different than what I'm accustomed to. And so I'm going to have to shift my gears. I'm going to have to set myself into that new place. And all of the discomfort that goes with that, I'm going to take as a gift from God to assist me to get out of myself and stay focused on the task at hand, which is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't know why that could not work for these folks as well. Oh, absolutely. I think I think it's perfect. And 
also knowing that you can turn to Jesus at any time as well, I think is so helpful. Uh, for me, counseling has different aspects to to it. And so it's not just that therapist, but I know in doing healing work or in any type of therapies, when people have a spiritual life, when people can turn to God, it can it can help that process because there's there's always somebody there that understands and there's always somebody that you can give things to when they're so hard. And it is a challenge to go from one way of life to another way of life. And in in our minds, you know, we remember the old way of life. Like we remember pizza and shopping and all of those things. But when you've lived in this environment where you're where you're every Every part of it's been so controlled. Coming out can seem exciting, but it's scary at the same time. And just remembering how do I live life, you know, in the real world of people and manage all these feelings. I think it's important to remember, too, that something that we always talk to clients about is feelings are temporary, now, not doesn't necessarily mean for the long run. I may feel sad a lot, but in the moment, it's a temporary thing. Typically, we can be sad, but it may last 20 minutes and then it's over. And then you're on to something else. So it's also reminding yourself of, I won't always feel this way. Or in this moment, this is something I feel now, but it doesn't mean I'm always going to feel this way. When Tierney, when when she was out, she didn't feel anxiety all day long necessarily, right? It was different things that triggered her anxiety. Um, so like I said, being in a restaurant with all the people, being at a Walmart, or just seeing a large group of people for her could trigger some of that anxiety. So typically we don't sit in our feelings all at once for long periods. So you've mentioned several different aspects of emotions and feelings that tyranny went through your daughter when, when she came out, anger, depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. and so forth. Among the whole roster of them, was there any one that was kind of central to them all? You know, it was very interesting when she shared with me, you know, I would have thought it would have been anxiety because that's the one she talked a lot about. And she actually, uh, I think, was given medication while she was incarcerated for her anxiety. Um, But actually, it was loneliness. And you would have thought she was lonely on the inside, of course. Being incarcerated, there was this, for her, as she described described it, as a horrific loneliness. She felt very isolated, even though we visited every other weekend. It was very isolating for her um, because the relationships that you make inside aren't necessarily strong relationships. It's more like survival relationships. That's the way I kind of understood it. So coming out and she's back with her family, you know, or her friends and her son, there was still this overwhelming feeling of loneliness. Um, And she and I would talk about, because she lived with me, you know, I'm there every day. So I'm like, this is really challenging for me to understand because I'm with you, you know, all the time. Or we would have her son or, you know, and talking about God, you know, and turning to God in those moments when you feel so lonely. And it was still very challenging for her. And I think what it was is in talking to her, it was because of connection, so much of the connection to the people that she loved, she didn't have in prison. And so without that connection, 
there was loneliness. And so when she came out, she has to reconnect with all of us. And it was so challenging because of her own thoughts. We're excited to connect as a family. But for us, it's hard to understand what her life was like in there, right? I can empathize with it, but I can't understand it. I haven't lived with it. And for her, because she she came out with all these different feelings of guilt and like she disappointed people, she disappointed herself, made it really challenging for her for a while to connect with all of us. And when you're connected with others in a loving, spiritual way, then that loneliness seems to be kind of dissipates. But it's working on those relationships and connecting with others and also just kind of normalizing that loneliness, it, it's, it can be a very normal feeling and just really pushing her in a way, not hard, but in a loving way that when she didn't feel like she could connect with me and her son, she can always connect with Jesus. She can always connect with God. She's made in his image. She is part of him. And so turning to him to help relieve some of that loneliness. And I would guess, not unlike what you mentioned earlier as a a practitioner to clients and you say, look, these feelings that you're having are real, whatever they might be, but they're in this moment. They're not going to last forever Mm -hmm. because for some reason we always think they are. That's part of the, the, the tension there. Is it the same with the loneliness feature? Does it you, you just encourage a person to say, "Look, you've only been out for a week, you've only been out for a mm-hmm. month, you've only been out for a year." So, but it and maybe to encourage them to recall that they actually have improved and that this is a matter of time thing. Oh, absolutely. You know, and for them to give themselves grace, you know, and to give themselves reminders that all of this takes time. You're not just going to come out of prison and boom, everything's back to normal. It, it's not going to happen that way. And so for the loneliness piece, it really is about I can relieve this feeling of loneliness. One, the reminder that it's not going to be forever. But two, the way to work on it is with reconnecting with the important people and the people that you love. It's reconnecting with them and then and connecting yourself even deeply, I think, with God. And those things are going to help with the loneliness pieces. We're talking with Renee Brown, who is Director of Counseling for Catholic Charities of Central Texas. I'm Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin in the Restorative Justice Ministry, addressing the issues of those who have been incarcerated and and when they release. You have just a few minutes left, Renee, but um, I did want to ask for people who are out there who have never really had any connection at all. That, that for them, prison is something they see on television. Uh, they hear different urban legends about what that's like and, and all. Is there anything that you can say to us as a general population? Uh, you, you find out in a, in a Bible study group that somebody there finally decides to cough it up. You, you find out in your workplace, you know, that somebody confides in you. Um, it's an awkward moment if you've never had any experience with it. What advice could you give them to be a post-incarceration helper? You know, I think it's um, treating people with um, respect and love, right? Um, I know for me, um, it was hard to share um, that my children had been incarcerated um, it, because as a, you feel like a failure as a parent, right? But I found that the more I shared 
uh, my story, their story. Um, it, it helped me to feel, um, I don't know if the word is better, but it kind of, it, it just helped me to feel like it wasn't so much of my responsibility. I didn't need to carry this guilt. Um, this is just something that happened due to poor choices. And that no matter what, I mean, God loves us. He's going to support us through this. And that these are human beings, inside and outside, human beings. And the people that are in there are loved by somebody. These are my children. I love them. Every person in there is loved by someone. And I think just showing that respect to that love for family. Well, thank you very much for this first session. Our next session will be on post-traumatic stress disorder. And in light of what you've just said, we give thanks to God for being made in his image and likeness and renewed and given a new life in Jesus Christ, his son, by his life, death, and resurrection and his sharing of our humanity. For all who are listening today, God loves you. He is with you in the person of Jesus Christ, and he asks us to be Jesus Christ to one another, that we may give glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.